The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 50. This is Writing Excuses, Juggling Ensembles. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Victoria. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. And uh, we have questions from you guys about how to manage a large cast. Uh, this is tricky. I was not good at this um, early in my career. In fact, uh, I have a, a story I think I've told you guys before. But when I first sat down to write the first Stormlight book, this was in 2002 before I'd sold any books, I failed because of the large cast. I wanted to do a big epic like George R. R. Martin, like Robert Jordan, that had a large cast. And I, even though this was my 13th novel, still crashed and burned trying to write this one. Um, and it didn't work until I had been handed the Wheel of Time and had to get up to speed on juggling a large cast very, very quickly. Uh, 2,600 named characters in the Wheel of Time. Um, and uh, that was uh, like going to the gym and being like, all right, how personal many, trainer. How many <laughs> point of view characters were in the Wheel of 50, Time? 50, I think, um, somewhere around there. Um, the, how many main viewpoint characters? Dozen um, yeah. or so is what I would say. Maybe maybe two dozen, depending on how you count main. Um, and so... There well, was using, a lot. Your, using your yeah. using your gym metaphor, <laughs> uh, there are people who go to the gym and you know, overhead pressing forty five pounds. Boy, that is a lot. And then there are the bodybuilders for whom overhead pressing four hundred and fifty pounds is also a lot. 
And what you're talking about here really is the the ultimate bit of heavy lifting. I don't I haven't counted how many mm-hmm. point of view characters there are in Schlock Mercenary because the point of view is the camera instead of the character. Um, but I I think I realized around 2008, 2009 that my my nascent outlining process needed to include which which characters whose names I know, whose backstories I love, am I going to leave out of this book except for we get to see them in the background so we know that they're not dead? Um, because un- unless I did that, my brain would latch hold of the fact that, oh, we haven't talked to so-and-so in a while. I should put them in a scene. And that was a disaster. So for me, large cast was about taking the huge cast and then for an entire book, setting a different set of limits. I mean, this is interesting. So in the Shades of Magic series, I think I have four point of view characters in the first book, eight in the second and 12 in the third. I like an expansion project. I like the idea that we can root in in a few first and then expand outward from there. I think it allows for focus. I also, though, and I I think this will come up a few times, I'm a really big fan of not treating all point of view characters equally. They do not all get the same amount of page. I have Mm -hmm. a primary cast, a secondary cast, and a tertiary cast. And the primary cast always gets point of view time. But I'll throw in some secondary and some tertiary just to break it up. I don't think you have to treat all members of the ensemble equally from a perspective do you get uh, fan anger from that? Because I get a lot of it from not treating my tertiary characters. People will read it. They'll write me emails and say, I feel like I've been promised much more from this character because my brief glimpses of them were so evocative. Why are you ignoring this character? Why do you hate this character? You know, that's the you can't win in <laughs> yeah. that. Like, I love writing characters who are on page for maybe a page or two and feel holistic enough and complete enough that you can imagine that they're the protagonist of a different novel. I want all of the characters in the book to feel like they have legs in that way. But no, I mean, I get people who are like, I want more of this person. I've been lucky in that I don't get the anger of it. And maybe when I, it's because in each subsequent book, I shift that a little bit and I give more space to the ones that I've established. I like having this almost ripple effect where if a person is a secondary character in one book, they will have a primary status in the next book. So I'm almost seeding them, letting you get acclimated to their presence in the room so that then when I focus on them more, you already are like, oh, hey, I know that dude. I'm really excited to learn more about them. That was the uh, second season of Community. We're introduced in um, one of the one of the humanities classroom scenes. Uh, we're introduced to Fat Neil, uh, where John Oliver says, "Yeah, oh, Fat Neil," and Neil says, "Neil is just fine." Um, and and then it's two or three episodes later when we get Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, where Neil's character arc is super important. And the fact that people are calling him Fat Neil is super important. But for that episode, he's, he, I, I thought when I first saw that episode, I thought, who's cameoing? Why is that person important? He just now showed up. We called attention to him. I don't think I've ever seen him before. So one of the, the questions here is how do you connect multiple vastly different POVs into a cohesive narrative, especially when some characters might be in totally different places in the world? Common tone modulation. Okay. Uh, It's a cheat that I use all the time where I will take words from somebody's dialogue at the end of a scene and I will work them into someone else's dialogue and they are literally an entire galaxy away doing something different, 
but I have picked this tiny thread that shows that there is a similarity between the two of them, and, and away I go. I like the groupings. I like physically grouping different teams. I like to think of them my A team, my B team, and my C team, because we now, like, readers are trained that if you start showing different teams, we're waiting for the coalescing. We are expecting that at some point in the narrative, the teams are going to begin to physically cross or they're going to begin to come together. I think that it is, there's a threshold for reader balance where they can hold a certain number of people and lines in their mind at a time. And you have to be very careful not to exceed the threshold for reader balance. It's why there are whole sections of George R. R. Martin books which focus on a narrowing slice of the cast because to ask them to hold all the cast in their mind for a long time. One, you're diluting the impact of any one of your cast members. And so I always encourage when people want to have a large cast that make sure every member of your ensembles are are serving a purpose mm-hmm. in the story. But I love a good physical grouping. See, for me, the question about how can you handle multiple POVs when they are in very different places, that's when I use multiple exactly. POVs, right? <laughs> because if they're all in the same place, then I'm just going to stick with my main character and we're going to follow her. But uh, in the Partials series, this is how I eventually started using multiple POVs. The first book is all Kira. The second book had to have a second one because we needed to know what was going on and she was in a different part of the world. And then by the time we got to the third, I think I have five or six POVs because that is how I can show the different parts of the world. And so for me, this is less a question of POV than it is of is your story big enough to justify having people in all these different places at one, once. One of the most important things I learned, recording writing excuses with uh, Brandon and Dan during season one back in 2008, um, <laughs> was the discussion of, I, I can't remember I can't remember whose writing book it was, but the idea that uh, the point of view character that you want to switch to is the one who is currently in the most pain. Uh, because I'm writing, I'm writing comedy. And uh, pain is funny. That is, it is it is a conflict from which I can always exact a punchline. You know, another thing that's useful here is determining just how you use cliffhangers and not particularly there's going to be large spaces uh, and large gaps. And different authors do it different ways. I'm not going to say there is a right and a wrong way, but I found as a reader that having to keep track, like if you if the author doesn't tie it up somewhat neatly, and before leaving this character for a long time, it's going to be much harder because you're going to feel like this is dangling over you. Now, sometimes you can be neat and still have a cliffhanger, right? You can sometimes be like, all right, this character, this thing's happened. You only have to remember they have fallen off a cliff. But if you have to remember they have fallen off a cliff while they're in a political negotiation that is not finished and their loved one is over here with it and keep track of all that and you're going to leave them for 100,000 words and come back, then you're setting yourself up for some failure. This is really interesting. I learned this lesson through timeline. I tell a lot of alinear narratives, and I also have multiple perspectives in them. So I have multiple perspectives, multiple timelines. And I learned that basically my reader could tolerate shift between perspectives or shift between timelines, could not tolerate a shift from perspective and timeline. So if I wanted to follow a character present and then into the past, I needed to come back to the present before I switched to somebody else's present. It's a matter of sandwiching. It's a matter of understanding that threshold for pain that a reader has in terms of like being able to keep track of the narrative. Because the worst reason to lose your reader is that they can't actually follow your narrative. They're <laughs> yeah. like, there are too many threads here. That, that is a great, uh, a, a great 
exploration of uh, the difference between prose and other mediums, because in comics and in TV uh, or, you know, visual medium, we can make this sort of jump and, and take the reader with us because we have text and we have video and we have audio and all of those things can be and used palette, to cue the change. Yeah, color everything. palette, all of those things can be used to telegraph it. Uh, but yeah, in in books, I really like I really like the the idea that you've limited yourself. You need to switch between yeah. all of these things. You're just not going to throw all the switches at once. You have to be very careful which switches you fl- you throw in which order, yeah. or else you genuinely will end up with a very confused reader. Hey, writers, are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Let's talk about a book this week. By yes. one of our favorite people ever. Um, this is How You Lose the Time War by Max Gladstone and Amal El-Matar is one of the strangest, most beautiful examinations of perspective. I think it fits perfectly into this theme. It is an epistolary love story between two characters, red and blue, two women on opposite sides of an alinear, intergalactic, interspatial, inter-everything inter- time war. And they begin living letters for each other. It is almost impossible to describe. And that is all right because it is only an, it is a novella length and I read it on a single plane ride and I would recommend everybody just carve out an hour or two Mm -hmm. in their evening or in their morning or in their lunch at some point and just (laughs) sit with it and just devour it. 
There is yeah. something so powerful about Structurally, it. Structurally, it's fascinating because you have two third-person limited points of view, and you have two epistolary points of view. And so there are four POVs, and they alternate very— uh, mechanically is the wrong word, formulaically. Yeah. There is a formula for the delivery of these POVs, and— on my second on my second iteration through that formula in that book i realized oh that is letting me perfectly keep track of where i am that is brilliant they used the pacing structure of chapter breaks yeah. to tell me who was talking and and when and why and how it's a masterclass on a lot of the things that it's we've discussed so awesome this so, is how you lose the time war by max gladstone and amal So another question we have on on POV takes a slightly different uh, way with these ensemble casts. Uh, One of our listeners has a uh, character who is going to be the the main viewpoint character. And this character needs to interact with a lot of different people and build relationships with all of them. How do you give time to a large ensemble when you're using one primary viewpoint character and you need to characterize all these different people? One of the things this listener says is, um, how can I isolate certain relationships for development without always having to send the other characters out of the room? Which actually is a, a thing I think about a lot because I find that personally, I don't know if it's the same with you guys, if I have too many characters in a scene, mm-hmm. I will naturally start to forget about some of them and they just won't participate. And if I get beyond about four or five people, characters start slipping. And I've realized I have to create scenes where if I, if I have more than that, I have to use other tricks to tell the story. Two things for me, hierarchy. I don't treat all those characters in that ensemble equally. And I don't think in a relationship or in a a group of five or six or 10 that we all would have equal relationships and equal time. Two, one of my own personal favorites, I write characters who hate each other. And the nice thing about writing characters who hate each other is they're not terribly enthusiastic. Even if they're on a spaceship or on a boat, they're not really great at being in the same room as each other at all the same times. And so remembering that in any group of 10, most of those people probably don't like each other equally and are going to gravitate into their own almost small subgroups. You have to remember to treat your ensemble cast like a group of actual people. <laughs> I, 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 would ask, uh, I would ask our listeners to, to think about a time when you've been super happy that a friend of yours has fallen into a wonderful relationship. You are now the POV character for their love story. How do you write that? Because that's, that's, if you have a single POV in your novel and other people are falling in love, that is exactly what you're describing. One of the other things here is the larger your cast gets, this isn't always the case, but the more often you're going to have to use shorthand to give readers reminders on who certain characters are. And some of these characters who don't get equal time with all the mm-hmm. others, you're going to have to be okay with the fact that you just aren't going to have a lot of time to develop them. And a great writer can take a short amount of time and characterize someone in a really interesting way, but then one note of that is going to stick in the reader's mind, and you have to remind them who that character is when they come back and not violate what that note is. So the novella that I wrote for Magic the Gathering has a, a fairly large cast of, of, by the end of it, six or seven main characters. And they're, I did this trick with them. I gave them, you know, here's one or two identifying traits that will just be shorthand because they're not main characters. They're there because they need to be there and their flavor. And 
it was really fascinating to me to read the editor's notes uh, because one of those who's just a very thinly drawn character with one or two traits, that was the editor's favorite character. Mm-hmm. He's like, I love every scene that this guy's in. His characterization is so strong. And I'm like, that's because he's a caricature. But that works. Don't feel like it doesn't work. I'm going to say as well, I think that we don't always give readers enough credit or space for their own imagination in these things. We feel the need to dictate all of the details of characters when the truth is like, sometimes you really just do need a few cues and shorthands and allow the reader to fill in and kind of fill in like smoke, spread out into that space. And I am somebody who I'm not great with faces personally. And so I love the visual cue shorthand. I will use an article of clothing. I will use a color. I will use a piece of jewelry. And that will be the thing that tethers an entire primary cast in my readers' minds to each of those characters. And yet when I look at the fan art that comes in for the series, they're all identical. Like there's just enough there that they get the main pieces of it. Yeah, back in September when we talked about writing under deadlines, I I mentioned uh, the importance of falling back on craft. And Dan, what you've described, uh, that is absolutely a craft trick. And Mm -hmm. you know you've done it right when your editor can't see the trick. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a very well-painted cardboard cutout, but uh, trick of the eye from mm-hmm. the reader's perspective, it's fully fleshed out. Also to that, beyond the physical details, giving one or two like kind of weird like idiosyncrasies of character can go such a long way with characters that don't spend a huge amount of time on the page. It really can. It can be really, really handy. Uh, Sometimes I feel bad about doing it because I'm like, this character deserves their own book. But (laughs) these are the things you have to do um, if you want to have a large cast. This character deserves their own book, but I deserve to be able to write the end and turn (laughs) this in for money. Yes. (laughs) Um, So we're out of time, and this is our last podcast with Victoria. (gasps) What? I know. I've had so much fun, though. But we're going to give you our last homework. Yeah. So this is a good old favorite of mine. I want you to take something that you've written, preferably something with an ensemble cast. Let's say a cast of at least three. We're not going to, it doesn't have to be a whole gathering, a whole gaggle. Um, Take a cast of at least three. And if you have a point of view character or even in your mind, a main character in this group, I want you to pick one of the other two or four or six or however many we're choosing from. I want you to think of how you would tell the exact same story and by shifting the leadership role, shifting the, the primary and secondary and tertiary roles around so that this new character, hopefully a minor character you've chosen, is now at the center of the narrative. This has been Writing Excuses. Victoria, thank you so much. Thank you. You're all out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.